Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we're talking about how the Trevor Project uh, their CEO is coming under fire, as well as some other things in the news summaries. Nick, it's good to be back. Thanks for covering while I was out. Of course. Good to have you back. But to your point, yeah, we'll start us off with our first story. And this one is about the Trevor Project CEO who was under fire for work, uh, consulting work via McKinsey for Purdue Pharma. So the story here, as reported by the increasingly reputable Teen Vogue and then first reported on by the Huffington Post, uh, sheds light on this controversy where CEO Amit Pali is coming under internal pressure from staff for his previous work at McKinsey uh, for pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma. Uh, Purdue Pharma is largely considered to be one of the primary uh, firms responsible for the opioid crisis in America, having brought OxyContin to market. And Pilly was a consultant at McKinsey working on the Purdue account. Although it, there does seem to be some controversy over how involved he was on that project. McKinsey seems to say that he is less involved than, uh, other people assert, but Trevor Project's staff have criticized the revelation, especially as the core of its mission, of course, is helping at-risk LGBTQ plus youth at risk of mental health crisis and suicide. And of course, opioid abuse and misuse really negatively impact that mission. Now, the chair of Trevor Project's board of directors has expressed full confidence in a paley However, some inside the organization are quoted anonymously as saying the mood is grim. So it doesn't look like as of now he's going anywhere, but does shine light on an issue that we've talked about at length on this podcast, which is the continuing fallout from the role of Purdue Pharma, McKinsey, nonprofits, and just tons of professionals in this space generally being connected to the opioid crisis. There are so many threads to pull on here and to go through the initial pieces. It's interesting. One is that traditionally this McKinsey information would have stayed incredibly close to the vest, wouldn't have been shared. There's NDAs, there's client confidentiality. And so, you know, the folks that work at, you know, consulting companies that take on uh, anything that comes over the desk because it's your job, right? When you sign up to work at a large corporation and they hand you some work, you do the work or you leave the organization. And so one, recognize the privilege of saying, well, I would have just quit. Okay, note that when we do large work in for-profit worlds, like there is work that must be done. Frankly, if I were to hold a microscope to your current, anyone listening to your current 401k holdings or your current stock portfolios, or if I followed you around, I'm just saying, I'm trying to take the other side in your mind and looked with this microscope at everything you've invested in and done, uh, I could find ties to big oil, probably big pharma. But I think in this case, it goes uh, beyond a touch because these 
court documents were opened up and exact emails and conversations uh, were seen and uncovered. So that gets a bit rough. And then I think there's more to dig into in the that uh, I meet Polly had on this saying that potentially, you know, he wasn't aware of the severity and danger that opioids presented to the populace, which it's tough because is very smart. He is a very smart gentleman. And you can see that in his, in his resume and in his dealings. And so I think there's a lesson there for how you communicate in those moments of crisis. And, you know, I, I, I think we're post deny, deny and, and more in, frankly, uh, rely on a, a larger picture. You know, we're talking about 168 hours of consulting that occurred. And I worry about probably, I'd say, more progressive organizations that have a higher and higher purity test. And I'm not saying this is one way or the other, but there's a certain point which no one will be pure enough, clean enough to have had the life experience you need. Because by the way, there's a world where you actually want somebody who is on the other side of the fence working. Actually, if someone were to come over from Smith and Wesson to do anti-gun work, you'd be like, yes, please, not no way. And so... It concerns me when I see then this sort of uh, historical uh, actions taken, which were, you know, they were in line with a company and they're being, if there was malfeasance, if there was wrongdoing, guess what? That would have been uh, found in the, in, the, in the procedures going on. So I find it sometimes frustrating that someone's past is used actually to uh, amplify maybe disgruntled issues in the workplace. And, and then it, it's only complicated because all of this has to be synthesized into one tweet and then attacked by folks that will bandwagon, not do the dig deep work or be sometimes coerced, coerced by uh, others around them into bandwagoning, into uh, attacking and canceling somebody uh, before, uh, you know, no judge, no jury, uh, simply close the door. So complicated. I would happily have <laughs> having me probably on uh, this podcast where I'd be interested in any long form conversation that he's having out there because it's not getting done in a tweet. And um, I think it's, uh, I think it's complex, but it, it had a broader reach. So this really like, I didn't want to pull this in as a, oh, look, someone's going to get canceled. Let's watch everybody. Like, let's think everybody. Yeah. I, I appreciate that response. I'd I'll share it. like my opinion. I think I'm a little, a little tougher on this in my opinion. And I think like to empathize with the employees, right? Like they are answering suicide hotlines, dealing with at risk youth at this time, like people in really critical moments in their life. And I can imagine it being jarring to find out that the person leading your organization and that, and it just comes out via, you know, the, you know, a journalist that this individual has been doing consulting for something that's been extremely destructive, whether or not how much responsibility they bear, how much ethical responsibility, even that debate aside, I think that could still be pretty, pretty jarring to be kind of empathetic to the folks at the Trevor Project. The way it's handled is that's the other threat. The way that the leader has a, a a narrow window to communicate and help uh, staff understand why things came to be. Because guess what? Going back to how this became public is because of court 
ordered, released documents. He actually was probably under an NDA. You cannot discuss clients. Heck, at Whole Whale, everyone on staff signs NDAs. You can't talk about things unless it's like on the case study page. There's things you can't run around say you did. So it's a tough spot, but it's, it's one that I think if you're human about to your staff and are able to have that conversation, like there's a way to do it. And I hear you, right? Like that is a team under stress they're frustrated. You trust your leader and suddenly trust, you know, years to make minutes to break and it happens and you're reading it on Teen Vogue and you're saying, oh, that's our leader. And what's more, especially because of how much a leader's reputation is tied and built into the trust of the overall organization, uh, it is, um, it's a hard moment. Uh, and thanks for bringing that too. Like that perspective is important. You have somebody answering phones and be like, what? Opioids? You gotta be kidding me. And that's frustrating. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think the, the nuance and being able to take a, a step back in a situation like this is important. And we wish uh, the Trevor Project well because they do life-saving work without a doubt. So yeah, we hope they're able to continue that. And if you're unfamiliar with them, definitely check them out. An incredible organization. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, all the all the positive thoughts to the to the staff, the board, and the CEO as they figure this uh, next step out because uh, that work needs to be done for sure. Absolutely. All right. How about I take us into our next story? All right. So this one comes from philanthropy.com and the title of the story, which I'll say is a little bit more of kind of an op-ed piece, if you will. But the title is Post-Row Digital Privacy Concerns Should Send a Signal to Nonprofits to Take Online Security Seriously. And George, I know you and I on this podcast will jump on every opportunity we have to talk about data, data privacy, security, and that sort of thing. And I think what the Roe decision has done is illuminated the gaps and kind of, quite frankly, the cavalierness of pretty intricate institute data privacy and security. You know, you now have states that could potentially be exploring uh, compelling companies or organizations with data to supply them to prosecutors in, you know, legal or criminal proceedings. And this opinion just kind of goes, kind of broadly goes into that nonprofits really need to be, this needs to be at the forefront of how they work uh, with their, their folks, their digital audiences, right? Whether it's donors or folks seeking really, really sensitive services, right? In this case, abortion services and uh, how you handle that data on the back end is now being thrust into the spotlight as a, you know, a civil rights issue, essentially. So George, what was your takeaway on this, this piece? Yeah, I normally don't put, I mean, yeah, that's not true. We do whatever we feel like because it's our, it's our show and it interests us. The nuance here is around what's at stake. Privacy has always mattered for the topic of, you know, women seeking information about abortions. That hasn't changed, but it has. 
because now we are entering into a very dark period of almost this neighbor turning in neighbor McCarthy era type of scare of like, well, wait a minute, if I'm in Texas and I'm choosing to seek an abortion and somebody assists me, that person is liable to fines up to like $10,000. It's not entirely clear if it's even across states that it can travel. And what's more, you can be as a nonprofit potentially subpoenaed for information, which is why you see Google in quite a hurry dumping location data, meaning deleting, removing location data so that if you're subpoenaed, you're like, sorry, it's gone. So one thing that if you, you're just starting from zero and you don't understand, even if you're on the bubble is don't collect what you can't protect. And frankly, if you get a subpoena from a court saying, we know you have this, you can't protect that technically from that patient privacy. And there is real fines. There is real uh, penalty uh, now associated with this. So the minimum viable data is is really probably what needs to to happen. And there's a lot more to come and we're paying close attention to this because the stakes are uh, life and death. Yeah. No, w- without a doubt, that's my takeaway. And just as an aside, we are now codifying, well, certain states are now codifying into law, essentially social totalitarianism. And that is utterly terrifying. And I'm sure we'll talk about it at a different point in time, but uh, we'll watch this space. I think tech, surveillance, privacy, and by surveillance, just browsing on the internet, surveillance is an issue, right? Websites are collecting data, organizations are collecting data. This is going to be the most important conversation, whether it's at the forefront, on the front page of the New York Times every day or not, of the next decade, I think. And uh, organizations need to be ready to have that conversation. All right. Our next story comes from JewishInsider.com. And this is a policy update, but the Senate Appropriations Committee has announced $360 million for nonprofit security grants. So this comes in response to a thread we've been following, but a response from Jewish groups that are looking for money to secure their organizations, like the the physical security. So this would protect nonprofit community spaces like JCCBs, synagogues, mosques, churches, and more as unfortunately the, the temperature for political violence and quite frankly, hateful violence has increased in the United States. So this is uh, being proposed by Senate Democrats in their 2023 government funding bills, which are released on Thursday. But I think this is really important and it also recognizes through this, this program, the need for safe and secure community resources and the vital role that nonprofit and even like organizations that aren't C3s like churches and synagogues and, and things like that, they play a vital role in our society and people feel safe in all those spaces. So I think this is welcome news. Yeah, I wonder, you know, as a protected group, you're saying the, the, the right to practice your faith is a fundamental reason why America is around. And, you know, that type of investment, frankly, is potentially very warranted uh, to, to protect those places. And I wonder if we begin to see because, you know, we've had you know, Catholics, uh, Catholics for choice that were actually speaking in the CEO from a, a location she didn't want to disclose anything about. I, I think there are more and more people that may fit 
more and more organizations and causes that may fit under this umbrella, deserving protection and the right to do uh, do their work in a, in a free country. Uh, so they're, they're talking about a $110 million increase over the previous year. It's, it's, I'll just be honest, very confusing to me because it's then rolled into a larger bill and it's hard to parse out. But I think there's a narrative here for other people maybe to write about who fits under the umbrella of, you know, faith, the work you're doing as a nonprofit and whether or not money for your protection to do and operate legally in this country should be protected. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I also agree that uh, Senate budgetary bills and legislation are confusing, but I'm sure we'll be talking more about this as Democrats want to push through quite a few bills, spend a lot of movement in Congress. So if that's your jam, I'm sure we'll be talking about those pieces of legislation in an upcoming podcast. All right, I'll take us into our next story. And this one comes from thenonprofittimes.com. And it's about uh, DAVs awarding nonprofit organizations with, with grants and the disbursement of actual grants to nonprofits from DAFs, which are donor-advised funds. So the article talks about how uh, DAF holders within Schwab Charitable have granted more than $4.7 to 117,000 nonprofits uh, during the 2022 fiscal year, which ended on June 30th. And that's a 27% increase from 2021, which is quite a positive trend. And Fidelity Charitable awarded $4.8 billion to nearly 125,000 charities during the first half of 2022, which is an 11% increase compared to that time in 2021. So I think the takeaway here is that disbursements from DAFs are increasing and potentially having greater impact. I guess it remains to be seen how like larger market trends will affect this, but uh, kind of interesting data to see. What's your takeaway, George? You know, I'm, hap I'm happy to be wrong on the other side of this because we were talking about how when the market dropped and that much money uh, was in fact in, in DAFs that just the overall value of these DAFs was dropping and there's like a fixed percentage uh, of it. So, you know, the the first six months versus the last six months is not a 12-month story. Uh, there could have been a lot of sell-offs that happened, like that number could have been influenced because that fiscal year is happening in the middle of the year. So I'm not willing to say that, you know, start popping the champagne because the, the second half of this year could be a lot skinnier uh, in terms of DAFs because, again, the overall amount has drastically decreased the S&P down 20%. Dep I mean, depends on the day when you're listening to this, but it's certainly not not up. And there is, it tends to just be an, an anchor on the overall percentage given from DAFs, donor-advised funds. And this is a sampling fidelity, I'm pretty sure is the largest in the game. So I was like very happy to see that. And, you know, Schwab, nothing to stick, <laughs> shake a stick at, certainly billions of dollars. They said 4.7 billion there. Uh, given as well. So that's exciting to see uh, some of those numbers in the first half of uh, first half of this year, but to be seen. I'll be I'll be happily wrong on this one. We like we like money to nonprofits. Um, Needs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we'll definitely see how that trends. But how about a feel good story, George? Please, what do we have? This one comes from spectrumlocalnews.com, 
And it is out of San Antonio about a nonprofit organization called Freed Texas, F-R-E-E-D, Texas, which is a San Antonio-based nonprofit that helps formerly incarcerated folks successfully transition into society. And I love reading this article because so many of the basic things that we take for granted are really hard and are really impediments to reintegration into society for folks just coming out of the prison system, whether it's access to a cell phone or a computer. Could you imagine applying to job a job without, you know, a computer and internet access? Nearly impossible. So this organization steps in to help folks and it talks about a particular individual who was out of the system who actually became a uh, substance abuse uh, counselor and a professional counselor uh, got their associate's degree. Uh, so really just a cool program and uh, seeks to address what seemed to be an, uh, a poorly trending recidivism rate in San Antonio. That is, it was going up. People were re-entering prison. I imagine COVID didn't help with that, but really cool to see a nonprofit stepping up in innovative ways. And I mean, this is a classic example of uh, a nonprofit civil society group filling a gap in a very large system with a pretty glaring gap. So you love to see it. Yeah, I love the, you know, the, it's just hyper practical. They offer when people get out uh, $15, uh, offer $15 cell phones, laptops. Uh, they give assistance for like transportation and Uber so they can get their first job because you just, uh, as the, the uh, the founder, uh, Leonara Walker says, uh, you go through so much an incarceration system because it's not made to educate, it's made to trauma and force. So I, I love these stories and hope uh, they are models that are repeated. All right, Nick, thank you as always. And see you next time. See you next time. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 